0: I want to take as my text this morning part of that reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8, in particular, verses 28 through 39. If you're making use of the Pew Bible, you can find that text on page 1123. Romans chapter 8 and beginning at verse 28, in which I'd like us to read together again. Romans 8 and beginning at verse 28. And Paul says famously, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with his son graciously give us all things? And who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies And who is it who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed interceding is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, quote, For your sakes we are being, Lord, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to the slaughtered. No. And all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I've titled my talk this morning, If God be for us, who can be against us? Indeed, that's the question that Paul asks in verse 31. Indeed, notice verse 31 again. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's what I'd like us to consider together this morning. If God be for us, who can be against us? And the first thing to note is that God is for us. (laughs) If we love God and if we're called according to his purpose, Paul says God is for us. Indeed, Paul says that if we love God and we're called according to his purpose, God is for us and he's working all things together for our good. Notice again verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so Paul says, uh, we know. It's sort of an interesting expression. I guess he, I mean he knows it and I suppose he expected that those to whom he was writing, they know it too. Perhaps this was something that uh, was taught on a regular basis, that God is working together, all things are working all things together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so he says, "You know that we know this, that all things work together for good. And it's a promise, Paul says, to those who love God. In fact, if you're loving him and sometimes you know you get, to, this is a good word. Uh, especially when you're going through it and you're being distressed because of one thing or another. And isn't it? It's just crazy. Sometimes I I wake up in the morning and I'm just anxious for the world in which I live. It's extraordinary. But the promise is, is that God is at least in your life, if you love God, he's working things together for good. Or if you like those who are doing what Jesus called the, the first and great commandment. And in fact, you remember reading in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, we'll probably read it again in weeks to come because we're in, the, we're in year uh, A and in the Gospel of Matthew. But famously, we read in Matthew 22, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, a Pharisee, asked Jesus a question to put him to the test. And he said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your, you shall love the Lord. <laughs> To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And on these two commandments, Jesus says, hangs all the law and the prophets. In other words, you could summarize everything that's written in the law. And there's some 620 laws in the Torah. And you can sum them up with those two points. And so Paul says that we know that all things are working together for those who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he adds, and to those who are called according to his purpose, according to God's purpose, that God has called them. He's doing something in their life. And we hope that's true of you, that you love God. And that he has called you. You are, in fact, uh, as uh, the apostles sometimes refer to members of the church in the letters that they wrote in the first century, you're the called ones. And those whom are called uh, are also those who answer the call. And so it's just not just the ones who heard a call, but those who answer it. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Those who are called according to his purpose. In fact, we'll say a little bit more about that in just a few moments. And so Paul says that God is for us working all things together for our good. And, 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 And then Paul says, and if we love God and we're called according to his purpose, God has always been for us working all things together for our good. So not just now. But always, indeed, notice verses 29 and 30. And for, the, for, for those whom he fought, in, in fact, he's making an argument. Go back to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so Paul says that for those who love God, and those who are called according to his purpose, these are also those whom he describes as those whom God foreknew. What an extraordinary expression. These same people who love God, who are called according to His purpose, are those whom God foreknew. In fact, to foreknow simply means to know before. Well, before what? (laughs) You might say before us. In fact, uh, we have a a hint of this because this, this, this type of theology... This type of sentiment, this type of truth is found in both the New and the Old Testaments. But um, we read in the prophecy of of Jeremiah and the biographical section, which is right at the beginning. In Jeremiah chapter 1, we read in verse 4, And Jeremiah says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And God speaking to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That's foreknowledge. (laughs) And before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And so what Paul is saying is that's true of the person who loves God and who's called according to his purpose. He foreknew you. Christine Kane in her book Undaunted said, God knew me and loved me before I was even me. (laughs) Extraordinary. And Paul continues, and those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. To predestinate means, quite literally in the Greek, to set out boundaries beforehand. And that in order to affect an intended outcome. You might might think of it as guardrails. Or perhaps something even more deliberate. To get you where God wants you to go. Indeed, Paul says that, uh, that, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, and then he adds this, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, that's really interesting, because sometimes when you talk about predestination and so forth, people are thinking, well, he predestined you to get to heaven. Because heaven we, we treat, the, we treat uh, heaven, uh, you know, as it's the terminus ad quim, the, the, the thing, the ultimate thing. As N.T. Wright said, however, he said... Um, Um, uh, heaven's important, but it's not the end of the world. (laughs) Heaven, in fact, is a waiting place for the kingdom that God will come and set up on earth. And paradise that was lost will be regained. And those who are citizens of the kingdom will inhabit it. In fact, if you read the the end of Revelation, it's not everybody going to heaven, but God and heaven coming down to earth to dwell with humankind. But here God predestines or sets out boundaries to get us to a place and what is that place? Conformity to the image of His Son. Indeed that's God's ultimate goal for you if you believe. That we might be conformed to the image of His Son. That's why Jesus talks so much about discipleship. That was His intention too deny, say no to yourself and say yes to me and follow me. Follow me. Indeed, conformity to his image morally and spiritually which is the point of discipleship. Jesus, as he famously said in Matthew chapter 10 beginning at verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher. Don't treat Jesus like some sort of of a of a carnival barker. Selling some cheap goods. He he, he, he is not a salesman from whom you buy spiritual products. He presents himself as Lord. Think of what he's saying. Say, you cannot be my disciple unless you say no to yourself and say yes to me. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master, Jesus says. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. And so Paul would say famously, is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. Forget Paul of Tarsus. The point is for me to be conformed into the image of the Son, who is my Lord, as well as my Savior. And so conformity to Christ morally and spiritually, and and, and even conformity to his image physically, that what happened to him should happen to us. In fact, that's even mentioned right here in this same letter to the Romans and in this very eighth chapter. We read in chapter 8, just a few verses away, in verse 11, Paul says, If the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. The spirit of God raised Christ on the third day and Paul says, and if that spirit lives in you, the same thing will happen to you. And he will return in the sound of the trump and the call of the archangel and the graves will open and he will call his own. And we will meet him in the air, and since he's coming down, rather going back up, we will be with him forever in the kingdom that he's come to finally set up. And so we pray, in thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Paul continues, and those whom God predestined, he also called, which within this divine chain of grace is is a call that's always answered. Sometimes it's referred to in theology as effectual call. It's it's not just words and falling on deaf ears, it's the seed that falls in the good soil and has a response and bears fruit. Those whom God predestined, He also called. Someone has written, Jesus said, many are called but few are chosen. And the writer says, and the difference between the called and the chosen is that the chosen don't just hear the call, they answer it. And Paul continues, and those whom God called, he also justified. Notice he's the one doing everything. He knows, he predestines, he calls he justifies. It's the work of God in my life and in yours. Simply put, to be justified means to be given a right standing before God. And the interesting thing is is that God is the one who needs to be pleased and here he's the one who justifies us pleasing himself on our behalf. <laughs> Indeed, it's God the one who's doing the justifying. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, wrote, when God justifies, and we might want to be clear about this, when God justifies a sinner, he's not declaring bad people good, or saying that they're not sinners after all. Rather, he's pronouncing them in his sight legally righteous, free from liability to the law of God that they have broken. Because God himself and his son has borne the penalty of their law breaking. Or as Paul Zoll wrote in his book, Grace and Practice, he said, to be justified means living a non accused life. It means having a, a, a certainty that, that in God's eyes we are innocent because we're in Christ. When you think about what, what, the, what the Father thought of the Son, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And when he dies for my sins. And he rises again. And so on. The father and I'm spiritually united in him. Or you. (laughs) Then when he sees you. He sees you in the son. And he says and I'm well pleased. That's justification. And then Paul continues and he says. And those whom God justified. He's also glorified. Which is a really interesting expression because the word glorified is in the aorist or the past tense. So that what in our case is a description of, what, of something that we're waiting for to happen in the future. Here is described as a past event. In fact they're all... as. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He glorified. And that's because that's how God sees it. What we're waiting for is something that in the mind of God is already an accomplished fact. In fact, God talks about this In his prophecy to Isaiah, Isaiah 46, and beginning at verse 9, he says to the prophet, remember the former things of old. Remember, Isaiah, all the history that's come before you, the calling of Abraham, the exodus of the children of Israel, the parting of the Red Sea, me with the children of Israel in the desert a a flaming pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day and on and on and on through the judges and the kings and so on remember the former things of old Isaiah for I am God there's no other I am God there's none like me I'm not one among many I'm Yahweh the I am who I am God there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things have not yet been done saying "I will, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. In God's mind he sees you, he sees me as glorified. And so Paul writing to the believers at Philippi in Philippians 1 and verse 6. He says, and I am sure of this, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Because that's what God does. God finishes what he starts. And so that's the first thing. God is for us. And then Paul asks the question, well, and, and if God is for us, who can be against us? Huh. Maybe you feel like there's forces against you. and Maybe there are. But the point is that what he's asking is, who can be against us in a way that really matters? And that's just it. But Jesus had forces against him. But it didn't really matter. Because I, he said, I lay my life. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord and I'll take it up again. And he did it. Indeed, notice verse 31. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice verse 33. And who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And and, and who is it who, who would condemn God's elect? It's Jesus who, who's the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Extraordinary. And so Paul asks, if God before us, who, who can bring, bring, bring a, an effective charge against us? Notice again, verse thirty-three. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. You're like going to the judge who's already made everything right, and you're complaining to him that things aren't right. I don't even know if he'd take the time to respond to such a charge. And Paul asks, and if God be for us, who can condemn us? Verse thirty-four. He says, for it was it's Jesus who died. He bore the penalty of our sin. The price has been paid. The the, the judgment, the sentence has been carried out on him for us. That's why Paul starts this whole 8th chapter of Romans by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So who can condemn? There isn't any condemnation. Verse 34, more than that, Christ rose from the dead, proving the effectiveness, the redemptive effectiveness of his death on our behalf. And Paul says it, and, and, and this, this one who died for us and rose again is, is ascended and seated at the right hand of God, the place of ultimate authority. <laughs> and he's for us. In fact, verse 34, he says, "He's there at the right hand of God, interceding for us. <laughs> He is at the right hand of the Father serving as our advocate, if you like, as our defense attorney. And he has grounds upon which to make a defense. Arguing on our behalf, making a case for us that the penalty that was due our sin has already been poured out on him. And that in him we're justified. In fact, uh, John the Apostle spoke in similar terms. They're all saying the same thing in different ways. In their own styles. But saying the same thing. 1 John chapter 2 beginning at verse 1, my little children, he's writing to the community of believers to whom he's writing, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That, by the way, is very important. We're not saying like, hey, it's all okay and now go sin. In fact, if God has done these things, we read in, in, in Paul's letter to Titus that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. This great thing that God has done makes us want to live for him in spades this great God. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if we do, and you will, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a defense attorney, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation, that's a big word, he is the satisfactory payment For our sins, and not for ours only, John says, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, children, adults, black, white, whatever. The whole world over are people who love God and who have been called according to his purpose for whom Christ died. A propitious and perfect sacrifice. And Paul says finally, and so if God be for us, who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? Notice verses 35 through 39. And who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Indeed, as it's written, for your sakes we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Just like Jesus before us. No, in all of these things, Paul writes, we are more than conquerors, if that's possible, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation That's everything that's not God. Now anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul asks the question, who will be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that is afflictions generally speaking, at the hands of others, or distress. In fact, the word distress is really interesting. It, it literally means to be stuck in a narrow place. When you might feel like you're boxed in and you've got no place to go. And I'm making every claustrophobic person nervous. But you're stuck. Will that separate you from the love of God? You're stuck. When I mean, you think about the Apostle Paul in the Mamertine prisons like down in a well. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, narrowness, entrapment, or persecution, even while we're obeying God, or famine resulting in hunger and not having enough to eat, or nakedness being without shelter and clothing, or danger, or sword that is, that is violence? We would, If we were writing that today, we'd, we'd put the word gun in there. They didn't have guns in the first century. Shall that separate us? And then he quotes Psalm 44 and verse 22 as it's written, For your sake, Lord, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to the slaughter. And then he says, no, no. <laughs> Let them slaughter us like sheep. Verse 37, no, and all of these things, no matter. We are more than conquerors. The word literally means hyper-victorious. <laughs> we're not just victorious, we're hyper-victorious. And so, the, the translators translated more than conquerors, or the New Living Translation, overwhelming victory is ours. It's not just victory, it's overwhelming victory. <laughs> now in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him. Who loved us. Verse 38. For Paul says. I am sure. I'm absolutely convinced. If I was a betting man. Paul says. I would, I would bet the wad. For I am sure. That neither death. Nor life. Nor angels. Nor rulers. That is spirit beings. Nor things present. That is things that may be threatening you. Right now nor things to come, that is, things that will threaten you in the future, nor powers, nor height, things above you, nor depth, things below you, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And why? Because God is for us. Because God is for us if we love God and we're called according to his purpose. Amen? Amen. If God be for us, (laughs) who can be against us? Let us pray. We sang it, Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Lord, the, the God of king uh, the, the, the Lord of angel armies is on my side. Why we, we don't know in fact when we read in the scriptures, all we all we get is that that he that you do what you do, Lord, just as an expression of the greatness of your grace, and that all through the everlasting state we will rehearse your graciousness, giving us something we could never earn. And something that we don't, in fact, deserve. It is given to us as a gift. And you are the great gift giver. Lord, help us to remember these things that we've talked about this morning. For our soul's health and that in you, you might be glorified. Lord, may we love you with all our heart, soul, and strength. And when we hear the call, answer it. In Jesus' name. Amen.